This morning we're going to look at a set of plans. These are plans for the tabernacle, Israel's worship center. God himself designed these plans. He delivered them in quite some detail to Moses on Moses' fifth trip up Mount Sinai, a trip which lasted 40 days in the presence of the Lord there. So not surprisingly, these are lengthy, detailed descriptions. In fact, this section on the building of the tabernacle and the the, uh, making of all of the things related to it occupies most of the remainder of Exodus, some 16 chapters. But I haven't forgotten that most of us just want to see the completed picture. So forgive me if we don't get into all the details of this. In fact, this is more than we could possibly even read this morning. I just want to make sure that you see the final picture, the beautiful reality which the Lord had in mind when this building project began. So like I said, we can't read all of this, but if you'll open your Bibles, I want us to scan through these chapters, especially from Verse, uh, chapter into verse uh, chapter 24 down through chapter 31 just scan through here where we can see what's in there although it's too much for us to just read so many chapters before uh, we talk about it and then we will discuss what it means picking up with uh, verse 12 of chapter 24 which is where we left off last time the Lord said to Moses come up to me on the mountain and stay here And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written for their instruction. And skipping down to verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up, uh, went up, uh, went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Lord said to Moses, "Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them: gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair." ram skins, dyed red, and uh, hides of the sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, uh, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then the Lord begins to show them the pattern. First of all, in verse 10, have them make a chest of acacia wood, that is the Ark of the Covenant. And he describes this in the gold cover of the Ark. And going down then to verse 23, make a table of acacia wood. And he describes the length of it and how it's to be built and uh, uh, the gold uh, molding and overlay of this table. And then down in verse 31, make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer it out. And he describes the lampstand and, and uh, all the parts of the lamp, uh, the seven lamps that are set together in this lampstand. Then in chapter 26, 
make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen blue, purple and scarlet yarn, yarn with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. And he goes on to describe all the curtains and, and the, uh, the support poles and uh, the way this whole tabernacle is to be structured down through chapter 26. Chapter 27, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. And he describes the altar on which sacrifices will be made. Verse 9 of chapter 27, he begins to describe the courtyard around this tabernacle. The south side, its dimensions, the uh, uh, north side, the east, and the west side, what's to be in this courtyard, how it's all to be arranged. And then at the end of chapter 27, verse 20, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives. This is provision for the oil that would be burned in the lamps. In chapter 28, he begins the description of the, the uh, vestments, the uh, garments, the priestly garments for, uh, uh, for Aaron and his sons who will serve as priests. Describe these in some detail, the ephod and the breastplate in verses uh, 6 and again in verse 15. On and down verse 31, the other priestly garments, the robe, the turban, etc., how these are all to be made for the priest. In uh, chapter 29, this is what you're to do to consecrate these priests, that they may serve me. And he describes the whole uh, procedure for setting apart the priest and commissioning them, ordaining them, as we would say in this chapter. Chapter 30 describes the altar of incense where uh, incense will be burned in the tabernacle, what it's to look like. Uh, in verse 10, he talks about what he uh, calls the atonement money here. It's basically uh, a, a tax that everyone will pay to uh, support the Lord's work. In verse 17, a, a bronze basin, he describes that and how it's to be made, where uh, ceremonial washings will take place. Then in verse 22, the Lord describes the anointing oil, the recipe for the anointing oil, how it's to be made. And uh, then down in verse, beginning verse 34, the recipe for the incense, which is to be burned in the temple. Um, a, a recipe that's not to be used for any other, any other place. And then in chapter 31, let me read again these first verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahish, Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to be made, they are to make them just as I commanded you. And so the Lord has this great plan that he unfolds in lots of detail, not every single detail, for lots of things that remain unanswered.
but uh, this whole plan of how he will establish the tabernacle and the priesthood there in the, in the wilderness. That's what I want us to think about this morning, to just step back and think of this whole, because I don't think we want to take the time to go through piece by piece by piece, every piece of furniture. But let's look at the whole. I think there are two great truths that God would have us to learn from this plan that he set before Moses there on Mount Sinai. The first truth is this. You can only meet God through Jesus. You can only meet God through Jesus. We live in a day of great religious tolerance. It's considered good and gracious and enlightened to believe that all ways lead to God. In fact, about the only position not readily tolerated in Western societies is one that claims exclusive access to God. But this text ends up teaching us that we can only gain access to God through Jesus. Now I know Jesus is never mentioned here, but stick with me and let me show you why this is what this teaches us. The very obvious central truth of all these detailed plans is that God and God alone determines how he will be worshipped. You know, there was no shortage of religion in those ancient days. The people of Israel had grown up in Egypt, and Egypt had long traditions of elaborate religion. And they were headed for Canaan, which was filled with the worship of God. If Israel wanted to build a worship center or establish a priesthood or inaugurate a system of sacred rites, they had only to look around. There were lots of examples. But the Lord, the Redeemer, the Creator of the heaven and earth, was not pleased to be worshipped according to the ways of Egypt or the ways of Canaan or the ways of their own design, God himself would determine how his people might approach him in worship. And so God revealed his own plans to Moses. Plans for the building itself, a portable tent, which could be packed up and moved with them as they traveled. Plans for the furniture of the tabernacle, the tables, the lampstand, the ark, etc. Plans for the laver and the altar which stood in the courtyard. Plans for the priests, detailed uh, uh, patterns for their vestments. Indeed, God's plans were so specific that they included even the kind of thread to be used in making the priest's robes. And the unique recipes for mixing anointed oil and fragrant incense which could be used nowhere else. God determines how he will be approached. Now, if there's any question about this, let me just point out how many times God makes this point. That everything must be done exactly as he had revealed it. In 25.9, we read, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. 
and 2540. See that you make in this case the lamps according to the pattern shown you on the mountains. In 2630, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown on the mountain. It's 278, make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. And then after seven chapters of God giving these specific plans, the part that we didn't look at, beginning in chapter 36, there's six more chapters that are almost a verbatim quotation of these seven chapters, telling how these plans were carried out in every detail as they were revealed. So in 36.1, we read, So Bezaleel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work instructing the sanctuary, they are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. And in chapter 39, so all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. And in chapter 9, verse 42 and 3, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and he saw they had done it just as the Lord commanded and Moses blessed it. Folks, there can be no question, how many times is this that the Lord has said, you will do it, and it was done exactly as the Lord himself planned it and commanded it. God and God alone determines how he will be worshipped, how we will approach him. So what does that mean for us? Surely God has not changed. If he determined how people were to approach him back then, surely he must still determine that. Oh, but if we're building a church building today or planning our worship, we can look through the Bible in vain and we'll find no instructions for how to build a modern church building. We'll find not one verse to help us in the worship wars of whether we have hymnals or project songs up on the screen. Does God not care about things anymore? Is he now to be approached however people might dream up an, an approach to him? Oh no, he's still the same. All these details about the, uh, about the tabernacle and the priesthood are simply designed to point us to Jesus. In Jesus, the focus of worship has changed from a holy building and a holy priesthood to a person in whom alone we come to know and worship God. Oh, God-ordained worship is just as exclusive today as it was then. We worship him only as he has ordained, but that one way to worship him is simply to come through Jesus. You can only meet God through Jesus. Now there are many ways that this section points that out to, to us. Let me just describe three. Don't get confused, the one and the two and the one, two, three here. These three things are, 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 are trying to explain this first point. Three ways in which Jesus, these things point us to Jesus. And the first one is that Jesus is the true temple or tabernacle that was foreshadowed in that wilderness tabernacle. What made that 
ancient tabernacle so special? Well, simply that God dwelt there. But in John 2, when Jesus came, Jesus said, destroy this temple of stones that they were talking about. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, that perplexed them. It took 46 years to build that temple, basically after the pattern of this wilderness tabernacle. What's Jesus talking about? Well, the apostle John explains the temple he spoke of was his body. Jesus' body is the true temple of which the tabernacle in the wilderness was only a foreshadowing. Sure enough, the Apostle Paul says that in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So the Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true, the perfect tabernacle or temple of God. Therefore, because Jesus is the true tabernacle, as you could only meet God in that ancient tabernacle, so now you can only meet God in Jesus. The second way that Jesus fulfills these is that Jesus is the true high priest, foreshadowed by that ancient priesthood. You know, after all this elaborate tabernacle was, uh, was completed, only the priests could go into it. And into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the innermost part of that, only the high priest could go and only once a year. For no sinful human could ever approach God apart from the mediators that God appointed. And even those mediators had to bring sacrifices to atone for sins. But the New Testament repeatedly and powerfully makes the point that those priests were only temporary, only a foreshadowing of the real priest to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect and only true mediator. Listen to Hebrews 7 as the Spirit explains it to us. There we read, If perfection could have been attained by this Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there must be a change in the law. This former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. You see, as ancient Israel had to come to God through these priests, so now only in Jesus can we approach God, even to worship him. That's the third way in which this passage points us to Jesus. Jesus now ministers in the true sanctuary 
the presence of God, which was only foreshadowed in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. I don't have to explain this. The book of Hebrews explains it. Let me just read God's own explanation from Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In in its first room were the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But, Hebrews 9 goes on to say, when Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear in God's presence. You see, just as Israel's worship, which God had ordained, focused on priests ministering in God's presence in the tabernacle, and that was the only way anyone could approach God through that. So true worship today must focus on the Savior and High Priest, Jesus, who has offered himself as a sacrifice for sins and now has entered the true presence of God in heaven to intercede for us there. You can only come to God through Jesus. Oh dear people, it sounds so gracious and so inclusive to say that everyone is free to worship God whatever way they please. But it's not true. It's never been true. God alone dictates how he will be worshipped. And there is no other way. In the wilderness there, he would be worshipped according to, in a tabernacle made according to his design through a priesthood ordained according to his design, and which he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And now, God has come near and tabernacled among us in Jesus, and he is the true temple, and he is the true priest, and he has access to the true presence of God, and that Jesus now says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can only meet God through Jesus. That's the point of all of this. This morning I call you to abandon every other religious hope and run in faith to the Savior. He alone can reconcile us to God. 
And he promises to receive those who come to him in faith. This morning also warn you to not ever turn away from him. For there is no salvation anywhere else. You can only come to God in Jesus. Well, that's the first great truth that we need to learn from this whole elaborate plan. But there's another truth, which I think is equally powerful that we need to think about. And that is this. That God dwells in the midst of his people. God dwells in the midst of his people. Don't you sometimes envy those people back in Bible times? I mean, think about these people of Israel as they lived kind of as nomads out in the wilderness. Here they are setting up camp, the 12 tribes, three on the north, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west. And there in the center is the Lord dwelling in the midst of their camp. And they can't see him, but over the Holy of Holies, they can see the pillar of cloud every day. The Lord is in our midst. That was God's promise concerning all these instructions from the very beginning. We see it at the very beginning in 25.8. The Lord says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. That's not the only time he says it. In the middle of this account, after the instruction about the priesthood, he says again, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting, and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priest. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God and brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord they're gone. And we see it at the very end of this account, when the tabernacle is finally complete in chapter 40, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Oh, what a great thing it would have been to live there with the glory of the Lord dwelling in the midst of the camp every day. And that blessedness of God's presence became even more profound when Jesus came. Remember his name? He is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. There in human flesh, God dwelt in the midst of his people and walked and talked, teaching them, healing them, casting out the spirits of the evil one, setting people free. No wonder crowds gathered to hear him and see his mighty work. The Lord is in our midst. And today... Where's the Lord today on the earth? Well, because Jesus has ascended into heaven, it's easy for us to focus 
on the fact he's far away. For we're certainly called to set our hearts on things above where Christ is. But may I suggest that God's elaborate plan for a temple in the wilderness is also designed to remind us that God still intends to dwell in the midst of his people. We see this truth in two ways that the New Testament refers to this experience in the wilderness. The first is that while Jesus in the New Testament is clearly claims to be the true temple of God, God dwelling with us, Jesus' body then, his church, is also called the temple of God, his dwelling place on the earth. Listen to the way the apostle Peter speaks of, of, of the church. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And what kind of house? Well, Paul explains in Ephesians 2, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. Oh dear people, you want to know where to find God in the world today? This is where God dwells. He dwells by his Holy Spirit in his church. This is how Jesus could say, I will be with you to the end of the age. For he was to give his spirit to his church. Brothers and sisters, you are the dwelling of God on earth. If anyone wants to find God, let him open the door and walk in here. Or peek in the windows. Here! The Lord is in our midst. Well, there's a second interesting way that this truth is made in the New Testament. In our account in Exodus, God commissioned the man Bezalel to build this dwelling place for him. In fact, Bezalel is the first person ever said to be filled with the Spirit of God. God equipped Bezalel mightily in order to build this tabernacle and all of his furnishings. The late Dr. Ray Dillard, Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary, made a profound uh, discovery in his study. Let me just quote him. He says, Paul, the apostle, appears to regard himself as the Basileel of the New Covenant. In the church, 
of God. At Corinth, there were two workers, Paul and Apostle, God's fellow, God, Paul and Apollos, God's fellow workers. The terms used to translate the craftsman builder terminology in Exodus are terms which occur only one time in the New Testament in Paul's statement that he is the architectone. We recognize that word, don't we? Architect. Paul is the architectone, the same word used of Basileo, the wise master builder of the church, the temple of God. Maybe I ought to just read this section in 1 Corinthians 3 that Dillard's talking about. So you see, 1 Corinthians 3 we read, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid the foundation as an expert builder, that is that word, the architect, and someone else is building on it. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So says 1 Corinthians 3. You see, once again, in yet another way, the Lord shows us how his promise to dwell in the midst of his people back there in the wilderness has now come to its fullness in Christ's church in which God himself lives in this building made of spiritual stones and fills it with the presence of the Spirit. As never before, God, dwells in the midst of his people today. And yet we take the church so lightly, don't we? Well, that's one of the many organizations that we're involved in. We give it a token share of our time and of our money. And life moves on to more pressing things. And frankly, we probably don't think about it until next Sunday again. Oh, but that's not God's plan for his people. God intends to be at the center of his people's life as much as he was in the wilderness where they literally all camped facing him. God intends to be at the center of his people's life. He calls his people to be a community of citizens of the kingdom of God, a family of sons and daughters, a holy temple made out of living stones, out of which praise to our God is continually heard. God still intends that we be one people with him at the center and even more so since he has given us his spirit to empower us. God dwells in our presence. Dear people, if we should ever be such a community, worshiping as those who know the Lord, in our presence, wherever we are, wherever we gather, devoted to his word to know him, to listen, to learn, 
loving one another deeply as Christ loved us, the world around us would be astonished as they saw God in our midst. And that's exactly how the Lord intends to add to his church through such a profound corporate witness of his presence in the midst of his people. You see, as we do church every week, we haven't yet begun to understand this. The God who tabernacled among his people in the wilderness, the God who walked among his people in the person of Jesus, that God by his spirit still intends to fill his church with his presence today. God will dwell. He does dwell in the midst of his people. Well, I know that we haven't even mentioned most all the details given to us in these many chapters. But that was never my intention this morning. My intention is for us to stand back and look at these ancient things and to see the powerful truths that they teach us today. And those truths are two, as best I understand it. First of all, that we can only meet God in Jesus. That hasn't changed. It's just been fulfilled in the beauty of the Savior. And secondly, God still, indeed in greater measure than they ever knew, God still dwells in the midst of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we can read chapter after chapter of instructions to ancient Israel and just get lost in the details and perhaps lose our way and get bored and wonder why you even preserved all of this for us. Lord, may we not miss the forest for the trees here. Help us to see, as you yourself told us, that when we search the scripture, that when we try to understand all of these, that what we should see is Jesus. For all these things speak of you, Lord. And so I pray that you take these simple truths and plant them deep into our heart that our commitment for the Savior might be unwavering and that our sense of your presence with us might so grasp our hearts and fill our thinking that it changes how we see ourselves as your people, as your church. Take your word, Lord, and plant it in our hearts and grow grow it to produce fruit in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.